Part Three: The Blazing of the Trail, Chapters Twenty Six, Twenty Seven, and Twenty Eight of The Blaze Trail by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Six. A lumbering town after the drive is a fearful thing. Men just off the river draw a deep breath and plunge into the wildest reactionary dissipation. In droves they invade the cities, wild, picturesque, lawless. As long as the money lasts, they blow it in. Hot money is the cry. She's burnt holes in all my pockets already. The saloons are full, the gambling houses overflow, all the places of amusement or crime run full blast. A chip rests lightly on everyone's shoulder. Fights are as common as raspberries in August. Often one of these formidable men, his muscles toughened and quickened by the active, strenuous river work, will set out to take the town apart. For a time he leaves rack and ruin, black eyes and broken teeth behind him, until he meets a more redoubtable knocker and is pounded and kicked into unconsciousness. Organized gangs go from house to house, forcing the peaceful inmates to drink from their bottles. Others take possession of certain sections of the street and resist outrance the attempts of others to pass. Inoffensive citizens are stood on their heads or shaken upside down until the contents of their pockets rattle on the street. Parenthetically, these contents are invariably returned to their owners. The riverman's object is fun, not robbery. And if rip-roaring, swashbuckling, drunken glory is what he is after, he gets it. The trouble is that a whole winter's hard work goes in two or three weeks. The only redeeming feature is that he is never, in or out of his cups, afraid of anything that walks the earth. A man comes out of the woods or off the drive with two or three hundred dollars, which he is only too anxious to throw away by the double handful. It follows naturally that a crew of sharpers are on hand to find out who gets it. They are a hard lot. Bold, unprincipled men, they too are afraid of nothing. Not even a drunken lumberjack, which is one of the most dangerous wild animals of the American fauna. Their business is to relieve the man of his money as soon as possible. They are experts at their business. The towns of Bay City and Saginaw alone in 1878 supported over 1,400 tough characters. Block after block was devoted entirely to saloons. In a radius of three hundred feet from the famous old catacombs could be numbered forty saloons, where drinks were sold by from three to ten pretty waiter girls. When the boys struck town, the proprietors and waitresses stood in their doorways to welcome them. "'Why, Jack!' one would cry. "'When did you drift in? Tickled to death to see you. Come in and have a drink. That your chum? Come in, old man, and have a drink. Never mind the pay. That's all right.' and after the first drink Jack, of course, had to treat, and then the chum. Or if Jack resisted temptation and walked resolutely on, one of the girls would remark audibly to another, "'He ain't no lumberjack. You can see that easy enough. He's just off the hay trail. Ten to one that brought him, for the woodsman is above all things proud and jealous of his craft.' In the center of this whirlpool of iniquity stood the catacombs as the hub from which lesser spokes in the wheel radiated. Any old logger of the Saginaw Valley can tell you of the catacombs, just as any old logger of any other valley will tell you of the pen, 
the white row the water streets of alpena port huron ludington muskegon and a dozen other lumber towns the catacombs was a three-story building in the basement were vile ill-smelling ill-lighted dens small isolated dangerous the shanty boy with a small stake far gone in drunkenness there tasted the last drop of wickedness and thence was flung unconscious and penniless on the streets a trap-door directly into the river accommodated those who were inconsiderate enough to succumb under rough treatment the second story was given over to drinking polly dixon there reigned supreme an anomaly she was as pretty and fresh and pure-looking as a child and at the same time was one of the most ruthless and unscrupulous of the gang she could at will exercise a fascination the more terrible in that it appealed at once to her victim's nobler instincts of reverence his capacity for what might be called aesthetic fascination as well as his passions when she finally held him she crushed him as calmly as she would a fly four bars supplied the drinkables dozens of pretty waiter girls served the customers a force of professional fighters was maintained by the establishment to preserve that degree of peace which should look to the preservation of mirrors and glassware the third story contained a dance hall and a theater the character of both would better be left to the imagination night after night during the season this den ran at top steam by midnight when the orgy was at its height the windows brilliantly illuminated the various bursts of music laughing cursing singing shouting fighting breaking in turner altogether from its open windows it was as jackson hines once expressed to me like hell let out for noon the respectable elements of the towns were powerless they could not control the elections their police would only have risked total annihilation by attempting a raid at the first sign of trouble they walked straightly into the pass of their own affairs awaiting the time soon to come when his stake blown in the last bitter dregs of his pleasure gulped down the shanty boy would again start for the woods End of chapter twenty six chapter twenty seven now in august however the first turmoil had died the jam had boiled into town taken it apart and left the inhabitants to piece it together again as they could the rear had not yet arrived as a consequence thorpe found the city comparatively quiet here and there swaggered a strapping riverman his small felt hat cocked aggressively over one eye its brim curled up behind a cigar stump protruding at an angle from beneath his sweeping moustache his hands thrust into the pockets of his trousers stagged off at the knee the spikes of his river boots cutting little triangular pieces from the wooden sidewalk his eye was aggressively humorous and the smile of his face was a challenge for in the last month he had faced almost certain death a dozen times a day he had ridden logs down the rapids where a loss of balance met in one instant a ducking and in the next a blow on the back from some following battering ram he had tugged and strained and jerked with his peavey under a sheer wall of tangled timber twenty feet high behind which pressed the full power of the freshet only to jump with the agility of a cat from one bit of unstable footing to another when the first sharp crack warned him that he had done his work and that the whole mass was about to break down on him like a wave on the shore 
he had worked fourteen hours a day in ice-water, and had slept damp. He had pried at the key-log in the rollways on the bank, until the whole pile had begun to rattle down into the river like a cascade, and had jumped or ridden, or even dived out of danger at the last second. In a hundred passes he had juggled with death as a child plays with a rubber balloon. No wonder that he has brought to the town and his vices a little of the lofty bearing of an heroic age. No wonder that he fears no man, since nature's most terrible forces of the flood have hurled a thousand weapons at him in vain. His muscles have been hardened, his eye is quick and sure, his courage is undaunted, and his movements are as quick and accurate as a panther's. Probably nowhere in the world is a more dangerous man of his hands than the river man. He would rather fight than eat, especially when he is drunk, as, like the cowboy, he usually is when he gets into town. A history could be written of the feuds, the wars, the raids instituted by one camp or one town against another. The men would go in force sometimes to another city with the avowed purpose of cleaning it out. One battle I know of lasted nearly all night. Deadly weapons were almost never resorted to, unless indeed a hundred and eighty pounds of muscle behind a fist hard as iron might be considered a deadly weapon. A man hard-pressed by numbers often resorted to a billiard cue, or an axe, or anything else that happened to be handy, but that was an expedient called out by necessity. Knives or six-shooters implied a certain premeditation which was discountenanced. On the other hand, the code of fair fighting obtained hardly at all. The long spikes of river boots made an admirable weapon in the straight kick. I have seen men whose faces were punctured as thickly as though by smallpox, where the steel points had penetrated. In a free-for-all, knock-down and drag-out, kicking, gouging, and biting are all legitimate. Anything to injure the other man, provided always you do not knife him. And when you take half a dozen of these enduring, active, muscular, and fiery men, not one entertaining in his innermost heart the faintest hesitation or fear, and set them at each other with the lightning tirelessness of so many wildcats, you get as hard a fight as you could desire. And they seem to like it. One old fellow, a good deal of a character in his way, used to be on the drive for a firm lumbering near Six Lakes. He was intensely loyal to his old fellows, and every time he got a little budge in him he instituted a raid on the town owned by a rival firm. So frequent and so severe did these battles become that finally the men were informed that another such expedition would mean instant discharge. The rule had its effect. The raid ceased. But one day old Dan visited the saloon once too often. He became very warlike. The other men merely laughed, for they were strong enough themselves to recognize firmness in others, and it never occurred to them that they could disobey so absolute a command. So finally Dan started out quite alone. He invaded the enemy's camp, attempted to clean out the saloon with a billiard cue single-handed, was knocked down, and would have been kicked to death as he lay on the floor if he had not succeeded in rolling under the billiard table, where the men's boots could not reach him. As it was, his clothes were literally torn to ribbons, one eye was blackened, his nose broken, one ear hung to its place by a mere shred of skin, and his face and flesh were ripped and torn everywhere by the corks on the boots. Any but a river man would have qualified for the hospital. 
Dan, rolled to the other side of the table, made a sudden break, and escaped. But his fighting blood was not all spilled. He raided the butcher's shop, seized the big carving knife, and returned to the battlefield. The enemy decamped, rapidly, some of them through the window. Dan managed to get in but one blow. He ripped the coat down the man's back as neatly as though it had been done with shears, one clean straight cut from collar to bottom seam. A quarter of an inch nearer would have split the fellow's backbone. As it was, he escaped without even a scratch. Dan commandeered two bottles of whiskey, and, gory and wounded as he was, took up the six-mile tramp home, bearing the knife over his shoulders as a banner of triumph. Next morning, weak from the combined effects of war and whiskey, he reported to headquarters. "'What is it, Dan?' asked the old fellow, without turning. "'I come to get my time,' replied the riverman humbly. "'What for?' inquired the lumberman. "'I have been over to Howard City,' confessed Dan. The owner turned and looked him over. "'They sort of got ahead of me a little,' explained Dan sheepishly. The lumberman took stock of the old man's cuts and bruises and turned away to hide a smile. "'I guess I'll let you off this trip,' said he. "'Go to work when you can. I don't believe you'll go back there again.' "'No, sir,' replied Dan humbly. And so the life of alternate work and pleasure, both full of personal danger, develops in time a class of men whose like is to be found only among the cowboys, scouts, trappers, and Indian fighters of our other frontiers. The moralist will always hold up the hands of horror at such types. The philosopher will admire them as the last incarnation of the heroic age when the man is bigger than his work. Soon the factories, the machines, the mechanical structures and constructions, the various branches of cooperation will produce quasi-automatically institutions evidently more important than the genius or force of any one human being. The personal element will have become nearly eliminated. In the woods and on the frontiers still are many whose powers are greater than their works, whose fame is greater than their deeds. They are men, powerful, virile, even brutal at times, but magnificent with the strength of courage and resource. All this may seem a digression from the thread of our tale, but as a matter of fact it is necessary that you understand the conditions of the time and place in which Harry Thorpe had set himself the duty of success. He had seen too much of incompetent labor to be satisfied with anything but the best. Although his ideas were not as yet formulated, he hoped to be able to pick up a crew of first-class men from those who had come down with the advance or jam of the spring's drive. They should have finished their orgies by now, and, empty of pocket, should be found hanging about the boarding-houses and the quieter saloons. Thorpe intended to offer good wages for good men. He would not need more than twenty at first, for during the approaching winter he purposed to log on a very small scale indeed. The time for expansion would come later. With this object in view, he set out from his hotel about half-past seven on the day of his arrival, to cruise about in the lumberjack district already described. The hotel clerk had obligingly given him the names of a number of the quieter saloons, where the boys hung out between bursts of prosperity. In the first of these Thorpe was helped materially in his vague and uncertain quest by encountering an old acquaintance. From the sidewalk he heard the vigorous sounds of a one-sided altercation, punctuated by frequent bursts of quickly silenced laughter. Evidently some one was very angry, 
and the rest amused. After a moment Thorpe imagined he recognized the excited voice, so he pushed open the swinging screen door and entered. The place was typical. Across one side ran the hardwood bar with footrests and little towels hung in metal clasps under its edge. Behind it was a long mirror, a symmetrical pile of glasses, a number of plain or ornamental bottles, and a miniature keg or so of porcelain containing the finer whiskies and brandies. The barkeeper drew beer from two pumps immediately in front of him, and rinsed glasses in some sort of a sink under the edge of the bar. The center of the room was occupied by a tremendous stove, capable of burning whole logs of cordwood. A stovepipe led from the stove here and there in wire suspension to a final exit near the other corner. On the wall were two sporting chromos and a good variety of lithographed calendars and illuminating tin signs advertising beer and spirits. The floor was liberally sprinkled with damp sawdust and was occupied, besides the stove, by a number of wooden chairs and a single round table. The latter, a clumsy, heavy affair beyond the strength of an ordinary man, was being deftly interposed between himself and the attacks of the possessor of the angry voice by a gigantic young riverman in the conventional stag, i.e. chopped-off trousers, cork shoes, and broad belt typical of his craft. In the aggressor Thorpe recognized old Jackson Hines. "'Damn you!' cried the old man, qualifying the oath. "'Let me get at you, you great big sock-stealer. I'll make you hop high. I'll snatch you bald-headed so quick that you'll think you never had any hair.' "'I'll settle with you in the morning, Jackson,' laughed the riverman. "'You want to eat a good breakfast, then, because you won't have no appetite for dinner.' The men roared with encouraging calls. The riverman put on a ludicrous appearance of offended dignity. "'Oh, you needn't swell up like a poisoned pup,' cried old Jackson plaintively, ceasing his attacks from sheer weariness. "'You know you're as safe as a cow tied to a brick wall behind that table.' Thorpe seized the opportunity to approach. "'Hello, Jackson,' said he. The old man peered at him out of the blur of his excitement. "'Don't you know me?' inquired Thorpe. "'Them lamps gives bout as much light as a piece of chalk,' complained Jackson testily. "'Knows you? You bet I do. How are you, Harry? Where you been keeping yourself? You look bout as fat as a stall-fed knitting needle.' "'I've been land-looking in the Upper Peninsula,' explained Thorpe, "'on the Ossawinamaki up in Marquette country.' "'Sure,' commented Jackson in wonder. "'Way up there where the moon changes?' It's a fine country, went on Thorpe so everyone could hear, with a great cutting of white pine. It runs as high as twelve hundred thousand to the forty sometimes. Trees clean and free of limbs? asked Jackson. They're as good as the stuff over on seventeen. You remember that? Clean as a baby's leg, agreed Jackson. Have a glass of beer? asked Thorpe. Dry as a tobacco box, confessed Hines. Have something, the rest of you? invited Thorpe. So they all drank. On a sudden inspiration Thorpe resolved to ask the old man's advice as to crew and horses. It might not be good for much, but it would do no harm. Jackson listened attentively to the other's brief recital. "'Why don't you see Tim Shearer? He ain't doing nothing since the jam came down,' was his comment. "'Isn't he with the M&D people?' asked Thorpe. "'Nope. Quit. How's that?' "'Count on Morrison. Morrison, he comes up to run things some. He does. Tim, he's getting the drive in shape and he don't want to be bothered. But old Morrison, he's as busy as hell beating Tanbark. Finally, Tim, he calls him. Look here, Mr. Morrison, says he. I'm running this drive. 
if I don't get her there, all right, you can give me my time. Till then, you ain't got nothing to say. Well, that makes the old fellow as sore as a scalded pup. He's used to bossing clerks and such things, and don't have much of an idea of lumberjacks. He has big ideas of respect, so he calls Tim dignified-like. Tim did hit him, but I guess he felt like the man who met the bear without any weapon. Even a newspaper would have come handy. He hands in his time to once and quits. Since then he's been mad as a barkeep with a lead quarter, which ain't unusual for Tim. He's been filing his teeth for M&D right along. Something behind it all, I reckon. Where'll I find him? asked Thorpe. Jackson gave the name of a small boarding house. Shortly after, Thorpe left him to amuse the others with his unique conversation, and hunted up Shearer's stopping place. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 The boarding house proved to be of the typical lumberjack class. A narrow stoop, a hallway and stairs in the center, and an office and bar on either side. Shearer and a half-dozen other men about his own age sat, their chairs on two legs, and their cork boots on the rounds of the chairs, smoking placidly in the tepid evening air. The light came from inside the building, so that while Thorpe was in plain view he could not make out which of the dark figures on the piazza was the man he wanted. He approached and attempted an identifying scrutiny. The men, with the taciturnity of their class in the presence of a stranger, said nothing. "'Well, bub,' finally drawled a voice from the corner, "'blowed that steak you made out of Radway yet?' "'That you, Sharer? inquired Thorpe, advancing. "'You're the man I'm looking for.' "'You've found me,' replied the old man dryly. Thorpe was requested elaborately to shake hands with the owners of six names. Then he had a chance to intimate quietly to Sharer that he wanted a word with him, alone. The river man rose silently and led the way up the straight, uncarpeted stairs, along a narrow, uncarpeted hall, to a square, uncarpeted bedroom. The walls and ceiling of this apartment were of unpainted plain pine. It contained a cheap bureau, one chair, and a bed and washstand to match the bureau. Shearer lit the lamp and sat on the bed. "'What is it?' he asked. "'I have a little pine up in the northern peninsula within walking distance of Marquette,' said Thorpe, "'and I want to get a crew of about twenty men. It occurred to me that you might be willing to help me.' The riverman frowned steadily at his interlocutor from under his bushy brows. "'How much pine you got?' he asked finally. "'About three hundred millions,' replied Thorpe quietly. The old man's blue eyes fixed themselves with unwavering steadiness on Thorpe's face. "'You're jobbing some of it, eh?' he submitted finally as the only probable conclusion. "'Do you think you know enough about it? Who does it belong to?' "'It belongs to a man named Carpenter and myself.' The riverman pondered this slowly for an appreciable interval, and then shot out another question. How'd you get it? Thorpe told him simply, omitting nothing except the name of the firm upriver. When he had finished, Scherer evinced no astonishment nor approval. You done well, he commented finally. Then, after another interval, have you found out who was the men stealing the pine? Yes, replied Thorpe quietly. It was Morrison and Daly. The old man flickered not an eyelid. He slowly filled his pipe and lit it. "'I'll get you a crew of men,' said he, "'if you'll take me as foreman.' "'But it's a little job at first, protested Thorpe. "'I only want a camp of twenty. It wouldn't be worth your while.' "'That's my lookout. I'll take the job,' replied the logger grimly. "'You got three hundred million there, ain't you? 
and you're going to cut it. It ain't such a small job.' Thorpe could hardly believe his good fortune in having gained so important a recruit. With a practical man as foreman, his mind would be relieved of a great deal of worry over unfamiliar detail. He saw at once that he would himself be able to perform all the duties of scaler, keeping in touch with the needs of the camp, and supervise the campaign. Nevertheless, he answered the older man's glance with one as keen, and said, "'Look here, Sharer, if you take this job we may as well understand each other at the start. This is going to be my camp, and I'm going to be boss. I don't know much about logging, and I shall want you to take charge of all that, but I shall want to know just why you do each thing, and if my judgment advises otherwise, my judgment goes. If I want to discharge a man, he walks without any question. I know about what I shall expect of each man, and I intend to get it out of him. And in questions of policy, mine is to say so every trip. Now, I know you're a good man, one of the best there is, and I presume I shall find your judgment the best, but I don't want any mistakes to start with. If you want to be my foreman on those terms, just say so, and I'll be tickled to death to have you. For the first time the lumberman's face lost, during a single instant, its mask of immobility. His steel-blue eyes flashed, his mouth twitched with some strong emotion. For the first time, too, he spoke without his contemplative pause of preparation. "'That's the way to talk,' he cried. "'Go with you? Well, I should rise to remark. You're the boss, and I always said it. I'll get you a gang of bully boys that will roll logs till there's skating in hell.' Thorpe left, after making an appointment at his own hotel for the following day, more than pleased with his luck. Although he had by now fairly good and practical ideas in regard to the logging of a bunch of pine, he felt himself to be very deficient in the details. In fact, he anticipated his next step with shaky confidence. He would now be called upon to buy four or five teams of horses and enough feed to last them the entire winter. He would have to arrange for provisions in abundance and variety for his men. He would have to figure on blankets, harness, cook camp utensils, stoves, blacksmith tools, iron, axes, chains, cant hooks, van goods, pails, lamps, oil, matches, all sorts of hardware, in short, all the thousand and one things from needles to court plaster of which a self-sufficing community might come in need. And he would have to figure out his requirements for the entire winter. After navigation closed, he could import nothing more. How could he know what to buy? how many barrels of flour, how much coffee, raisins, baking powder, soda, pork, beans, dried apples, sugar, nutmeg, pepper, salt, crackers, molasses, ginger, lard, tea, cornbread, catsup, mustard, to last twenty men five or six months. How could he be expected to think of each item of a list of two hundred, the lack of which meant measureless bother, and the desirability of which suggested itself only when the necessity arose? It is easy, when the mind is occupied with multitudinous detail, to forget simple things like brooms or iron shovels. With Tim Shearer to help his inexperience, he felt easy. He knew he could attend to advantageous buying, and to making arrangements with the steamship line to Marquette, for the landing of his goods at the mouth of the Asawinamaki. Deep in these thoughts he wandered on at random. He suddenly came to himself in the toughest quarter of Bay City. Through the summer night shrilled the sound of cachinations painted to the colors of mirth. A cheap piano rattled and thumped through an open window. 
men's and women's voices mingled in rising and falling gradations of harshness. Lights streamed irregularly across the dark. Thorpe became aware of a figure crouched in the doorway, almost at his feet. The sill lay in shadow so the bulk was lost, but the flickering rays of a distant street lamp threw into relief the highlights of a violin and a head. The face upturned to him was thin and white and wolfish under a broad white brow. Dark eyes gleamed at him with the expression of a fierce animal. Across the forehead ran a long but shallow cut from which blood dripped. The creature glassed both arms around a violin. He crouched there and stared up at Thorpe, who stared down at him. "'What's the matter?' asked the latter finally. The creature made no reply, but drew his arms closer about his instrument and blinked his wolf eyes. Moved by some strange half-tolerant whim of compassion, Thorpe made a sign to the unknown to rise. "'Come with me,' said he, "'and I'll have your forehead attended to.' The wolf-eyes gleamed into his with a sudden savage concentration. Then their owner obediently arose. Thorpe now saw that the body before him was of a crippled, short-legged, hunched-backed, long-armed, pigeon-breasted. The large head sat strangely top-heavy between even the broad shoulders. It confirmed the hopeless but sullen despair that brooded on the white countenance. At the hotel, Thorpe, examining the cut, found it more serious in appearance than in reality. With a few pieces of sticking plaster, he drew its edges together. Then he attempted to interrogate his find. What is your name? he asked. Phil. Phil what? Silence. How did you get hurt? No reply. Were you playing your fiddle in one of those houses? The cripple nodded slowly. Are you hungry? asked Thorpe with a sudden thoughtfulness. Yes, replied the cripple, with a lightning gleam in his wolf eyes. Thorpe rang the bell. To the boy who answered it he said, Bring me half a dozen beef sandwiches and a glass of milk, and be quick about it. Do you play the fiddle much? continued Thorpe. The cripple nodded again. Let's hear what you can do. They cut my strings, cried Phil with a passionate wail. The cry came from the heart, and Thorpe was touched by it. The price of strings was evidently a big sum. I'll get you more in the morning, said he. Would you like to leave Bay City? Yes, cried the boy with passion. You would have to work. You would have to be chore boy in a lumber camp and play fiddle for the men when they wanted you to. I'll do it, said the cripple. Are you sure you could? You will have to split all the wood for the men, the cook, and the office. You will have to draw the water and fill the lamps and keep the camps clean. You will be paid for it, but it is quite a job. And you would have to do it well. If you do not do it well, I would discharge you. I will do it, repeated the crippled with a shade more earnestness. All right, then I'll take you, replied Thorpe. The cripple said nothing nor moved a muscle of his face but the gleam of the wolf faded to give place to the soft, affectionate glow seen in the eyes of a setter-dog. Thorpe was startled at the change. A knock announced the sandwiches and milk. The cripple fell upon them with both hands in a sudden ecstasy of hunger. When he had finished, he looked again at Thorpe, and this time there were tears in his eyes. A little later Thorpe interviewed the proprietor of the hotel. "'I wish you'd give this boy a good cheap room and charges keep to me, said he. He's going north with me. Phil was led away by the irreverent porter, hugging tightly his unstrung violin to his bosom. 
Thorpe lay awake for some time after retiring. Phil claimed a share of his thoughts. Thorpe's winter in the woods had impressed upon him that a good cook and a fiddler will do more to keep men contented than high wages and easy work. So his protection of the cripple was not entirely disinterested, but his imagination persisted in occupying itself with the boy. What terrible life of want and vicious associates had he led in this terrible town? What treatment could have lit that wolf-gleam in his eyes? What hell had he inhabited that he was so eager to get away? In an hour or so he dozed. He dreamed that the cripple had grown to enormous proportions and was overshadowing his life. A slight noise outside his bedroom door brought him to his feet. He opened the door and found that in the stillness of the night the poor deformed creature had taken the blankets from his bed and had spread them across the door-sill of the man who had befriended him. End of chapter 28 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com